Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The growing nationwide acceptance of the use and possession of marijuana for medical and recreational use, how it has grown and evaluated, is the topic of this edition of Radio Curious. We visit with Tim Blake, the founder of the Emerald Cup, California's oldest competition among outdoor cannabis growers. The Emerald Cup originated in what has been called the Emerald Triangle, an area in northwestern California which includes Del Norte, Trinity, Humboldt, and Mendocino County, where marijuana is sometimes characterized as the economic engine. In the first of two conversations with Tim Blake, recorded in the studios of Radio Curious on January 17, 2014, I asked him what marijuana growers could expect in 2014, considering that California is in the midst of the most severe drought in recorded history, and the fact that water is indispensable to growing marijuana. We're going to have a perfect storm and uh, a major crisis, not only for the cannabis growers, but for the, the vineyards and for all the uh, agricultural farmers throughout the state. Uh, there's no snowpack in the Sierras. I've been tracking this for uh, several months, and uh, there's no reservoir uh, capacity uh, for Lake Mendocino, 5%. And uh, you can do the math. you got springs drying up and wells going dry in January. And at the projections that we see, like Johnny Pinches, our supervisor, has been saying, we're going to have a crisis. We're already in a crisis. So what does that mean? How will that manifest on the material plane of the rural growers, people who live out in the rural lands of, of our county, bigger than the state of Delaware, bigger than the state of Rhode Island, uh, with a population of about 88,000 people, uh, with no water, no money? Uh, the people that have water, that have deep uh, wells or large lakes, ponds, are going to do quite well because you're going to see cannabis probably double or triple in, uh, in cost over the next year, just like every other agricultural product, because you're going to lose probably two-thirds to 90% of the available parcels to grow on. I mean, a lot of these parcels that were uh, not... Uh, water rich that basically have been bringing water in or using small springs they're drying up they're not going to have any water so what you're going to have is you're going to have all these people plant their crops this year and then one by one they're going to have to let them go as the summer drags on so you're going to see uh you're going to see people fighting over water trying to get illegal water from trucks bringing it in you know like in humble stealing it from schools uh it's going to be a, a disaster how do you anticipate the uh, resolution of this disaster you know, we've been talking about it, and we've been kind of looking at it as like there's three possible options going on here. One is that we continue with the projections of only a couple inches of rain between now and the end of February and uh, limited rain from March through uh, June. And at that point, probably 90% of the growers won't be able to grow. And if you look at people uh, like all farmers with house payments and bills, uh, you're going to see an economic disaster for those people. Uh, the vineyards in Sonoma, wh where are they going to get water? There's nothing to steal from Lake Mendocino already. Uh, so you're going to look at 50,000 acres that may have to be let go. I mean, things that people can't even really conceive of right now are going to be on the table. And uh, 
the secondary option is if we do get some really good rain, which they're not projecting, and we get a miracle and we get some late spring water, then maybe only half or more of the parcels will not be able to be grown on. You know, but you're still looking at probably at least a third to, to half of the parcels not being able to grow this year. So what are the social consequences? Oh, it's a social consequences. You're talking about foreclosures, bankruptcies, divorces, you know, uh, abuse and emotional insanity. You know, people, you know, across, you know, you're looking at people that aren't going to be able to take care of themselves and the social aspects of that. I mean, you know, you're going to see. When I say social consequences, I was actually limiting that question more to marijuana growers and marijuana production. Mm-hmm. Well, you're um, you're going to watch uh, the price escalate two to three times if it goes like that. Uh, you're going to watch people that uh, have some money put away not have any money at the end of this year. You're going to see a whole industry collapse, basically. So uh, when we talk about prices, what were the prices last year for... Uh, marijuana. Well, again, there's a, there's a lot of factors when you say that to come into consideration. Are you talking out of state prices? People taking something out of state? Are you talking small boxes, a hundred packs? Let's uh, start perhaps first with the definitions, yeah, uh, terminology, as in what is a hundred pack? Well, you call them boxes. Yeah, they they call them boxes now. They got so big up in Northern California, growing a hundred pounds wasn't really any size anymore. So they got to what they call boxes, which are a hundred pack of a hundred pounds of cannabis. And so, and many times people grow large enough crops that they can do three, four, five boxes at a time. Five hundred pounds, which is like five hundred pounds. So you're seeing these people in Trinity and Humboldt, not in Mendocino very much, because we've had the regulation. You can only grow twenty five plants. It's uh, pretty obvious if you're way out of control, and they are controlling most of that, uh, the DEA that, you know, and the feds and the local law enforcement. So most of the, the real large grows are up in Trinity and Humboldt. You know, um, and uh, we're not looking at that problem down here. So in Mendocino, with people under control in small parcels, it won't be as much of a devastating effect as it will up in Humboldt and uh trinity where people have gotten used to doing hundreds and hundreds of pounds and if you're looking at a a cannabis plant uh needing thousands of gallons of water over its life and you start adding up hundreds of plants i mean where are they going to get these these acres of water so the life of a cannabis plant is annual planted Mm -hmm. in the spring harvested and uh taken out of the ground in the fall yeah when we talk about the hundred boxes Mm -hmm. that's a hundred pounds of what kind of marijuana? Well, it's commercial finished cannabis flowers. So that means trimmed flowers. Yeah, trimmed flowers, yeah. So it's in small flaky pieces like um, uh, maybe strips of oregano. Yeah, it's down and cut down. Flowers have been trimmed down. It's put into pounds. It's been sealed up and it's been put into... How is it sealed? Well, it depends. Now, it's, it's really become an art form in itself. Most people were just sticking it in bags uh, or, or turkey bags and putting it away, and their, their cannabis was going brown towards the spring and summer, and it was, didn't have a shelf life. Now you've gotten people with nitrogen sealers that are actually putting nitrogen and sealing it. You've got uh, vacuum sealers with, the, uh, with all the backpacks, and so people are going to a lot of effort now to seal cannabis, and so it has a better storage life, and it can be shipped better, and it also gets rid of all the smells, too. And so it's become quite a professional operation for most people up here to, to cure and package cannabis because you're no longer, you, you can no longer get away with an in, inferior product that wasn't cured or stored properly. When you say a professional operation, uh-huh. it's all done as kind of a cottage industry back, yeah. in the, back in the woods? Yeah. Well, you've got families that, uh, 
you know, in the old days, if you could grow 100 pounds, you were considered, that was considered a, a, a line you crossed where you were a big grower. Now, people at these 25 plant grows in the middle of the sun where they're bringing four to eight pounds of plant, and they're getting 100 to 200 pound crops out of their, their small grows. And so they become very efficient with family operations on how to harvest that, bring it in. Uh, a lot of people are using uh, trim machines now, but we're seeing a big backlash on that because the trim machines beat the cannabis up. Uh, they don't do as fine a job with it. And most people want to see a perfect product. And so you're seeing a lot of these people that bought these trim pros and, and whatnot are finding that they're getting a backlash from the market that really wants to see a better product. So are you saying that the... A typical way or a typical way of shipping marijuana is in hundred pound boxes. No, no, I wouldn't want to. You know, I wouldn't want to. <laughs> well, good. I wanted to clear that up. Yeah, uh, there are people that have large crops now that can ship like that. That's not the average grower. The average grower is, you know, doing their small, you know, one and five and 10 pound lots and stuff. And they're not doing that. But we have seen and everybody acknowledged that there are a lot of out of town people that are doing large crops uh, up here and, and they're shipping them out in, in boxes. Yeah, Hermetically hundreds. sealed. Hermetically sealed, yeah. Sealed okay. up for the most part, they're sealed and going out packed because of course you got to avoid, evade law enforcement on the roads. Uh, well, we'll get, hopefully we can get to that. Let's stay with the prices. Mm -hmm. One pound hermetically sealed bag of marijuana. Mm -hmm. What does it go for at the different levels? One off the ranch, uh -huh. off the farm, starting yeah. there. And then as it's finally um, either sold or broken down and then sold to the ultimate consumer. Yeah, in the Bay Area right now. Uh, well, let's start here. Okay, let's start here. Um, if you're talking about people coming up here and picking up one to fives, uh, five pound packs, uh, those prices are really fallen. People aren't paying more than about 15, 15, uh, 15 a pound. $1,500 a pound. $1,500 a pound. And then as you get into larger lots of 10, 20 or say 20 to 50 pounds or 100 pounds that price has dropped as far as uh or as low as 11 and 12 so basically cannabis is is going out between a thousand dollars and 1500 a pound right now and uh that's, that's the price that's paid to the grower that's the price that's paid to the grower but you have middlemen involved in that so course. tell us about the middlemen well it's like everybody else you know it's all comes down to who you know and so people in these mountains um we wanted to have uh, a wonderful um, business with the dispensaries of California. Our collective, which was the Mendocino Farmers Collective, which we ran out of Area 101, uh, worked with Tom Allman and local law enforcement to set up a program where we could represent the local outdoor growers and break into those markets, which are basically dominated by indoor throughout California, and get the growers up here some of that market and let them do that without having to send their products out of town. And in this case, a lot of people send it out of state because that's where the markets are. Um, I think it's important for our listeners to note that Tom Allman, who our guest Tim Blake just mentioned, is the Mendocino County Sheriff, who's been involved in trying to, um, well, what's he been involved in? What's, how would you characterize what uh, Sheriff Allman has been trying to do on the marijuana front here in Mendocino County? Well, uh, the year Tom ran for election, originally, um, he ran against uh, Kevin Broin and a couple of other uh, sheriffs. And Pebbles Trippett, lifelong activist here, came to me and asked if I would help sponsor a debate at Area 101 involving the sheriff candidates and 
the local people, which make uh, make up more than half of those people being cannabis people. So we finally realized that the cannabis people had a say in the vote in which way the sheriff's election would go. They came out, they did the debate, it went so well that we did a runoff with Kevin Bruyne and Tom Allman, and we got Tom Allman elected. And uh, there were a couple hundred people up there for that. Asa and Normal and all the activist groups were up there. We filmed it, put it out. And for the first time, law enforcement talked openly with cannabis growers about how they would deal with each other. Uh, so Tom kind of inherited uh, quite, a, quite a challenge there. I wouldn't call it a mess, but it was a challenge in that he was the first one to really have to take the bull by the horns and start interacting with growers and figure out how law enforcement would work reasonably so with, with the people of Mendocino. And he's been doing that now for the last six years. Let's move back to prices. Mm -hmm. Somebody wants to buy some marijuana in Mendocino County. Mm -hmm. How do they find a distributor other than the pharmacies or the outlets? Well, it's all word of mouth. People know each other. They find uh, they have connections. I mean, this there's I mean, a trust factor here. There's a on trust both factor. sides. See, you have an interesting thing where you had a uh, completely underground market until uh, 20 years ago. It was basically all underground. As it became legal and the dispensaries opened up, you had a lot of these people that were underground go into the dispensary businesses. So it was still some of the same networks and same people. And then as the dispensaries have gotten uh, attacked by the feds, these people have gone in and out of trying to be legal and work with dispensaries. And then they go hide for a couple of years and they come out and play. And that's what happened with us. We had the MFC running up at Area 101 a couple of years ago. Everything was really rolling out. We had the 9.31 program where you could grow up to 100 plants legally with permits from the county. And we were really segueing cannabis into uh, mainstream society. The feds looked at that and said, we're going to have to come here and take this out because if we don't, we will not be able to turn this back. And that led to another two years of he heavy repression uh, over the last two years, which is finally breaking down because of Washington and Colorado's uh, vote uh, to go for recreational cannabis. So again, how does somebody find a, a vendor? Mm -hmm. How does somebody find a vendor? Um, it would basically be contacts and word of mouth and people that you'd known through, you know, periods of time, industries, family members. How does the vendor know that the purchaser is a legitimate purchaser? That's a very challenging thing. That's where you got some of these robberies coming on. People lose their connections. You've got somebody you've worked with for 10 or 20 years and they stop working or something happens or they pass away. And so you've got to find somebody else and it leaves you vulnerable and you have to do that. And that's why these uh, different you have robberies, to do what you have to go outside your normal area and find another person. You have to find your outside of your circle. But what happens is, look, these mountains, you know, take any ranch, take Sherwood Ranch up in Willits. You know, you got 80 parcels. You got, you take, uh, you can, you know, first gate or second gate up uh, Sherwood Road. You've got 50 to 80 parcels out there. Almost every one of those people is growing cannabis. They all help each other and they all go to parties together and they all gather together. And then you ask somebody, hey, you know what? How's it been going for you? Has it been working for you? Do you got somebody that's helping you out? And you ask around and somebody leads you to something and one thing leads to another and you find these people. So let's go a couple of hundred miles away mm -hmm. with uh, a pound or five or ten pounds of marijuana, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps to Sacramento, perhaps to San Francisco, perhaps 500 miles away to Los Angeles. What does the product sell for there? The product is still very cheap considering what is going to, on How the How much is cheap? Uh, I've heard that in L.A. you're only getting 16 or 17 a pound all the way down in L.A., uh, 15 in the Bay Area. 
uh, 13 up here. So you're really, what you're only getting is you're getting the couple dollars that would for each pound that you're paying a driver to, to, to move it. You're not really making any more money because it's still pretty much controlled by the collectives. Uh, but what happens is, there's another interesting thing, is that the very best cannabis, outdoor grown cannabis in California, a lot of it gets sold as indoor. They're really, they come up here, they find the very best of it, and indoor sells for a lot more money, so they move it into these collective dispensaries throughout California, and they sell a lot of it as indoor, and they make a lot more money. Well, Tim Blake, let's talk more about indoor-grown versus outdoor-grown marijuana. But before we get there, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Tim Blake, founder of the Emerald Cup. California's longest-running marijuana competition among outdoor growers of organic cannabis. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Indoor-grown versus outdoor-grown marijuana. Quality, medicinal impacts, chemicals, tastes, hallucinogenic effects... Well, they've proven now scientifically the terpenes are the flavor. Uh, the, the, they set you up for accepting the high when you smoke something. It's like when you smell a piece of fruit and you get that flavor. It gets you ready to take in that, the wonderful taste. And Emotionally or biologically ready? I think both. I think both. Uh, and so you've got the terpenes and the cannabinoids which they're now showing the cannabinoids are the healing aspects of cannabis. They're showing that they don't really show up that much in indoor produced material but that's because it's if you take a tomato into a garage and grow it under lights is it going to have the same energy that it's going to have if you grow it in your backyard in a pot it's not so really if it wasn't for the fact that the federal oppression came in back in the 80s and they wiped out all the tie and the mexican loads uh you wouldn't even see indoor because why would anybody have ever come up with it the in, indoor cannabis is the ingenious development of American people that had nowhere else to go. So they started growing under, under lights. Well, they, they grew under lights uh, for, I think, the reasons you just mentioned mm -hmm. and also for not having their plants pulled by the police. Right. Well, back in the, uh, in the early 80s, uh, the generals of the business, at that point there were a number of um, groups that basically led all the, uh, the importing of the, the Thai and the Mexican, the South American weeds, all the hash, the Afghani hash. And they were bringing in 100,000-pound loads and bringing them into the Bay Area, dropping them off ships off the coast. And out of those 100,000-pound loads, four guys would get 25,000 pounds and five guys would get 5,000 pounds and five guys would get 1,000 pounds and so on down the, the load. And they'd all move that product up and down the coast. And you'd see 10 to 20 loads like that come in a year. And that's what was really developing the whole market. When you talk about quantities like that, mm -hmm. what is your source of information? Uh, my source of information. I was, uh, I've just been involved in this since I was 14 years old. I've watched it all the way through. Okay. How old uh, are you now? I'm 57. And, uh, you know, um, the story I tell was my father was an attorney and head of the American Civil Liberties Union, a very liberal attorney out of, out of the Bay Area. And we moved over to Santa Cruz, to Capitola, in the uh, early 70s. And the barnwood went up on the walls, and my mom was an artist. She started representing the artists there. And the next thing you know, all these cannabis people started coming in. And some of them thought that if they helped me uh, deal, I was a high school kid. I would go get a pound from these guys and think that I was a kingpin guy. I didn't know that they'd have 5,000 pounds in their garage. I was, eight, I was 17 years old. These guys were 23. 
and they thought if if uh, they helped me and they ever had trouble, my father would maybe help them. And so I didn't realize I was kind of being used, but also kind of being led down the road. And uh, so I was kind of raised in that, and I got to see the whole thing evolve. And, led down uh, the road to a career path? To a, to a career path. I mean, of course, I sold real estate. I started selling real estate when I was 18. I had a, I have a number of production companies. I've had a number of companies my whole life that I'm, I'm a workaholic. Production companies, what did you produce? Um... We helped a friend of ours do an old movie, uh, first computer-generated movie called The Lawnmower Man. Okay. Unrelated to marijuana. Oh, unrelated to marijuana, yeah. Okay. And okay. then we did a, pro- a program called Eco, You and Simon 2 with, uh, with Stanford University about self-esteem and environmental education for children. And we went up against Barney. And then we had a rap label. But going back to your question, though, Barry, it's very good. So the general came to me, one of these people came to me, and they said... Um, you're going to be growing under lights in two years because they're going to take out every load, every tie load, every hash load, every Mexican load in the next two years. And we're all going to get wiped out and they're going to bring cheap cocaine on the streets and we're all going to be growing under these lights. And I looked at this guy because I had quite a bit of cannabis in my backyard at that time. Where was your backyard? Um, That was in Santa Cruz. And I thought he was out of his mind. And this was in 1970. This was in the early 80s, probably 82, 83. And this person who I'd worked with for a long time came to me and said he had the best cannabis I'd ever seen. It was the first what you'd call super cannabis. Now you've got the OG and you've got the sour diesel and you've got these super strains. When you say OG, that's a name. Yeah, OG is a strain. Sour diesel is a strain. There are all these Kush strains that are very strong. Back in the 80s, the first really super strain was called the Magic or Chronic or the Grease. And it was selling for twice what every other strain was selling for. Let's um, change topics here for a minute Uh and talk about taxes. Uh Going back to the people who would come to Mendocino, Humboldt, or Trinity County to buy some marijuana in quantity, they buy direct from the seller, Uh the grower. There's no tax involved. There is there, other than property taxes, a uh, contribution to the community through taxes by the growers? Well, I think that uh, most of the growers have formed other businesses and found other ways to, to pay those taxes. Most of the cannabis growers up here want to be tax-paying, uh, law-abiding citizens. They would just as soon pay their taxes, and they would be you know, totally law-abiding citizens if there was a vehicle and a way for them to do that. Well, there is the vehicle of an anonymous donation. Um, there are, but I think, and I think most people do a lot of that. I think you do see more of that than, than people realize, and I think that uh, people find ways to pay taxes, even if it's just anonymously, and they all find that. Well, Tim Blake, I'd like to continue our visit in another edition of Radio Curious, uh, part two, in which we'll talk about uh, how cannabis is segueing into society and related aspects. But before we go there, can you tell us about a eureka or an aha moment in your life that has changed your perspective on the world? Yeah, I had an experience with uh, extraterrestrials. and two friends of mine coming back from Oregon at one point where they tracked us for about an hour. And this wasn't just one of those moments where you think you see a light in the sky and it blinks on and off. This was where we actually pulled over uh, because it was so mind-boggling. And then the ship 
separated into three different pieces and spun at the same time. And all of us had seen this. In fact, one of the gentlemen with me was a devout Christian who didn't even get high at all. He couldn't believe it. And then that came, came back together and it came towards us from about a mile away and then came over us and we could see it. It took over four uh, four lanes on the highway and it pulsated for about 30 seconds and then took off in front of us into light speed and disappeared into the universe in front of all three of us. And uh, all three of us were changed forever from that moment on. How were you changed? I realized that uh, we had beings from other planets and other parts of the universe that were here, that there was no denying what I saw, no matter how much I wanted to, and that I was going to have to open up and start really looking at the world in a different way, a more expansive view of what we really think of reality. When you say there was no denying of what you saw, no matter how much you wanted to, why would you w want to deny something like that? Well, maybe that's the wrong way. It's like I wanted it to be true so much uh, that I it, w it was really unbelievable to realize that no matter how much I could discount it, that I, I couldn't. That this really did happen. It was three people. They were objective. They saw the same thing. It went on for quite some time. So the same question. Uh -huh. Why would you want it to be true? Why would I want it to be true? Uh, because I have, uh, since I was a child, have felt very strongly that um, we have been part of a larger uh, universe of beings uh, forever, and I've spent my life uh, researching that uh, and really did take off after that incident. And so uh, I, uh, I, do, I do know it's true, and it's time for all of us to really understand uh, the larger universe we live in. So... Next question is, what would you like to do with the rest of your One Precious Life? Um, well, I wrote one book, and I'd like to write a second book. I'd like to write my second book. I promised my uh, grandfather I would do that. And so uh, I want to take a year and write my second book. It's one thing I want to do. What would it be about? It would be uh, about the second half of the... I wrote the first book about the, uh, the evolution of the cannabis business how it started in the 60s and 70s. Basically, it's kind of a, um, a godfather story, but from the uh, West Coast perspective of cannabis. And, uh, and then the second book would be taking up from that period. I think the first book ended in 91, so I'd basically pick up that from... And so it'd be, it's a two-part book, basically, that uh, chronicles the whole history of the West Coast evolution of the cannabis business. So other than that book, mm -hmm. is there another one that you could recommend to our listeners? I'm reading a book called Sex at Dawn right now, which is an incredible book. It's, uh, it's about the evolution of, of humans and how we came about and our behavioral patterns and uh, really opens us up to uh, all the issues of monogamy and sexual behavior. And my girlfriend read this and she wanted me to, uh, to read it. And uh, I've started reading it. It's a great book. I mean, it doesn't recommend people just giving up monogamy. It just talks about uh, how we evolved to be the people we are. And it's a very insightful book. And I love reading uh, books like that, so uh, I'd recommend anybody to check that out. Well, Tim Blake, thank you very much for joining us on part one of our conversation about marijuana in 2014 in Northern California. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. This was the first of two conversations with Tim Blake, recorded on January 17, 2014. He's the founder of the Emerald Cup, California's oldest competition among growers of outdoor organic cannabis. For further information, visit his website, www.theemeraldcup.com. 
The book Tim Blake recommends is Sex at Dawn, The Prehistoric Origins of Modern Sexuality by Christopher Ryan. There are over 500 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, www.radiocurious.org, where they're free for you to stream, download, enjoy, and share. We appreciate your curiosity, ideas, comments, and questions. You may reach us by email. Our address is curious at radiocurious.org or snail mail 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482, or by phone, 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Onestead is our associate producer, and I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.